A reading is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. If you're following in the church Bibles, it's on page 1007. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of God. Well, good morning. Our text today is uh, the text Jody just read, Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. You'll be helped uh, if you follow along. So if you haven't turned there, it would be helpful to turn there. Um, <clears throat> when I was in college, I once took an astronomy course, and I learned that uh, the universe is slowly expanding, that everything is drifting farther and farther apart from everything else. And in some ways, this is a picture of the human race after the fall. We're drifting farther and farther apart from God and from each other. Sometimes we feel this really concretely, right? Uh, like our nation feels so divided right now. Or sometimes our relationships fall apart at school, in our families, even in church. We can be tempted to think that things are more divided now than they've ever been. And there may be some truth in that in the short term. But when we take the long-term view, we see that humanity really has been drifting apart from God and from each other ever since Adam disobeyed God in the garden and then blamed it on Eve. Where's it going to end? Well, Scripture tells us, even in this passage, that there's a day fixed, a day appointed, when it will end. You can see it in verse 25. It's called the day. What's the day? It's the day of final judgment. This is the day when Christ returns to judge the world. I want to read you a few sentences from our statement of faith, our confession just to remind you what we believe about this. It says that at the last day, Christ will descend from heaven and raise the dead from the grave to final judgment. A solemn separation will then take place. The unrighteous facing God's eternal wrath and punishment in hell and the righteous endless joy with God. So another way to put this is there's a day coming when the unrighteous will be separated from the presence of God forever. But the righteous will be brought into communion or community with God and each other forever. This is what Jesus Christ came into the world to do. He came to take those who are drifting away from God and each other and bring us into communion with God and with each other. We experience 
a taste of this communion now. And our great hope is one day we'll experience this communion fully in the presence of God. This is why our church should be characterized as it should be characterized rather by communion or community. Not perfectly, but really as a taste of the communion to come. Our church should be a place where the gravity of Jesus Christ draws us in to God and to each other. And the point of this text is this today. It is that we have confidence to approach God through the blood of Jesus, so we should draw near to God and one another. We have confidence to approach God through the blood of Jesus, so we should draw near to God and to one another. There are two parts to this text. First, we're told what we have in Jesus. You can see this in verse 19. It says, since we have. Or again, verse 21, since we have. And then we're told what, what we should do in light of what we have in Jesus. You can see this in verse 22, let us draw near. And then in verse 23, let us hold fast. And then in verse 24, let us consider. So there's two things that we're going to learn today from this text. First, what we have in Jesus. And second, what we should do in light of what we have in Jesus. Well, the text begins with this word, therefore. And Josh taught us a couple weeks ago that whenever we see therefore, it's kind of canned, right? We should ask what it's there for, right? And what's this therefore here for? It is... Um, it's drawing a conclusion, right? Therefore, it's drawing a conclusion from everything that the author of Hebrews has argued in Hebrews 5 through Hebrews 10. So I'm going to read through Hebrews 5 to 10 right now. Just kidding. Okay, I'm not going to do that. Luckily uh, for us, the author sums up what he said in Hebrews 5 through 10 in verses 19 to 21. So we'll just read those verses. And basically, He's told us what we have in Jesus. And first he says this. He says, we have confidence to approach God. We have confidence to approach God. And this is what he means when he says in verse 19, we have confidence to enter the holy places, the place where God, the Holy One, dwells. God is holy which means he's absolutely pure and absolutely separate from his creation and especially from our sin. So maybe you've heard the term holy ground. What's holy ground, right? It's something, there's something special to that place. It's specially dedicated to God. Or, or we call the Bible, you ever seen this, the holy Bible, right? Why? Because there's something special about this book, right? It's not like any other book. It's the very Word of God. Well, in the Old Testament, Israel was told to build a holy tent to worship God. It was called the tabernacle. And inside the tabernacle, there was an inner room 
that was called the Holy of Holies. It was the most holy of places because it was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was the place where God himself dwelled. And it was separated from the rest of the tabernacle by a curtain and separated from the people by a curtain. Did you know that in the Old Testament, only one person could enter the Holy of Holies, the high priest? And he could only enter once a year. And and when he entered, he had to make sacrifices, blood sacrifices to bring in, to, to walk in before the presence of God. You can read about that in Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 is the Day of Atonement ritual. If you have a few minutes this afternoon, that could be a good text to read, thinking about what we're talking about today. Well, why did God have Israel build this tabernacle with these holy places? He wanted to teach us that sinful human beings cannot enter before the presence of God lightly. So if you had the chance to meet the Queen of England, I hope that most of us would have the sense to not just be like, what's up, Elizabeth? You know, bring in and give me five, right? We're not going to meet the Queen of England and do that, right? Um, You'd show her the respect that's due her office, right? How much more so with God? There's a story in Leviticus 10 where the two sons of the high priest Aaron disobeyed God in their duties at the tabernacle. And the text tells us that fire came out from the Holy of Holies and consumed them. I think, I think this is actually pictured really well in, in the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. Have you seen that movie? All right? All right? I, I know. From the sublime to the whatever. Okay? But I, I think it actually is pictured well. All right? Uh, what, what's Raiders of the Lost Ark about? Indiana Jones is competing with the Nazis to find the lost Ark of the Covenant, which is in the Holy of Holies. And what happens at the end of the movie? The Nazis open up the Ark, right? And they're consumed by fire, right? This is actually what even the letter to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 12. It says, our God is a consuming fire. The point is, Sinful human beings cannot approach a holy God lightly. In fact, sinful human beings can't approach a holy God at all. If we were living in the Old Testament, none of us, not one person in this room, could go into the Holy of Holies. But here we're told in this passage that Jesus has opened for us a, in verse 20, it says, a new and living way. A new and living way. I think he's referring to the New Testament, to the new covenant that Jesus made with his blood. Verse 19 says that we enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And then verse 20 says that we enter in through his flesh. The point is that Jesus' death on the cross is the sacrifice that opens up the way for us to confidently approach a holy God. Why do Christians have confidence to enter before a holy God? 
Because the death of Christ means that our sins are forgiven. Notice here that our confidence to approach God is not in ourselves. Some people are naturally very confident people, right? So if you're, you're in sales, you're probably a very confident person, right? Uh, other people are not so confident, right? Maybe that's you. Maybe you're always apologizing, always thinking that you're wrong. But the cross of Jesus Christ levels this difference. To the confident Christian, it says, lay aside your confidence. Your confidence in yourself cannot allow you to approach a holy God. Only the blood of Jesus can allow you to approach a holy God. To the Christian lacking confidence, the, the cross of Christ says, you have a reason to be confident. The blood of Jesus has given you an entrance into the holy places, into the very presence of God. But we not only have confidence, right? What do we have, all right? We have confidence to approach God, the author of Hebrews says. We not only have confidence to approach God, in verse 21 he says, we have a great high priest, a great priest over the house of God. What does a priest do? Priests were given in the Old Testament to offer sacrifices and intercede between God and his people. But in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, we only have one great high priest, Jesus Christ. And he offered one great sacrifice, his death. It doesn't stop there, though, right? He, he, he didn't just die. He was raised from the dead. He always lives, Hebrews says, to intercede for us. So it's not like this. It's not like Jesus died for your sins, took care of the problem, shakes your hand and says, good luck with the rest of your life, right? No, he rose from the dead. He sat down at the right hand of God and he's there now continually interceding for us. So we not only have confidence to approach God through his blood, we have, the text says, we have Jesus himself, our great priest who lives and intercedes for us before God. This is what Christians have in Jesus. And this is the author summarizing for us basically what he's argued for all the way from Hebrews 5 to Hebrews 10. So maybe if, if you have more than a little time this afternoon, and, and you want to see a fuller picture of what we have in Jesus, read Hebrews 5 through 10. It really goes into detail in that. Why does the author of Hebrews summarize, repeat what he said in chapters 5 to 10? Why does he summarize for us what we have in Jesus? Because these are the basis for how we should now live our lives. Since we have these things in Jesus, he argues, we should draw near to God and to one another. You can see how Jesus Christ is the gravity that pulls us back to God and to one another. So in light of what we have in Jesus, what should we do? The author of Hebrews tells us three things. First, he says, 
We should draw near to God. We should draw near to God. You see that in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Jesus has opened the way to God, so we should draw near to God. I think we can understand this verse better by contrasting it with something that the author of Hebrews says earlier in the letter. He says this, it's a warning. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. See, our evil, unbelieving hearts lead us to fall away. But when we have a true heart that's full of faith, it leads us to draw near to God. This is how someone becomes a Christian, right? So if you're not a Christian in here, this is how you become a Christian. You, you genuinely confess your sins with a true heart and draw near to God by faith in Jesus Christ. But the point of our text here is that this is not only how we become a Christian, it's how we continue to be a Christian. We continue to draw near to God in full assurance of faith. I want to ask, what if you don't feel full assurance of faith? What if you don't feel it? What if you find yourself struggling with unbelief? The first thing I want us to notice is that the author of Hebrews assumes that Christians will struggle to draw near with full assurance of faith. If he didn't assume that, he wouldn't have written this, right? If no one struggled with drawing near with full assurance of faith, why would you say, let's draw near with full assurance of faith? Everyone would already be doing it, right? So the author assumes that we will struggle with that, that Christians will struggle with that. Don't let the devil accuse you and trick you into thinking that you're not a Christian because you don't feel full assurance right now. What do we do when we don't feel full assurance of faith? I think we need to remind ourselves what we have in Jesus, just as the author has done for us in verses 19 to 21. You see, I think one of the major reasons that we don't draw near to God is because we're afraid. It's because we feel guilty, right? We're afraid that God won't accept us. And the truth is, we are guilty. And there's no way we can come before God on our own. But what does the gospel tell us? It tells us we have a great priest. He's interceding with God for us on the basis of his own death. We have confidence to approach God by his blood. In fact, the author of Hebrews even gives us two more reasons that we can have confidence to draw near to God in the second half of verse 22. He says two things. He says, We have hearts that are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and bodies that are washed with pure water. I think he's referring here to Christ's death and to our baptism. So, in Christ's death, His blood has been sprinkled on our hearts to cleanse our guilty consciences. And in our baptism, our bodies are washed. 
symbolizing the fact that Christ has washed all our sins away and the hope that one day he'll even raise our bodies from the dead, right? So putting this all together, when we don't feel full assurance, we should, we should always look to Jesus and what he's done for us. Jesus Christ is our full assurance. He came to restore us to communion with God. He opened a way for us to approach God. So in light of what we have in Jesus, we should draw near to God, whether for the first time or for the millionth time. I think one of the most practical ways that we can do this is through the discipline of prayer and, and praying to God. That's one major way we draw near to God, right? So I wanted to, I know some Christians struggle with prayer. I wanted to suggest a book that might be helpful to you. It's called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. It's very down-to-earth. I know several people in here have read it and been helped by it. The point here is that first, we should draw near to God. But second, in light of what we have in Jesus, we should hold fast to our confession. I see that in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What's a confession? It's a statement, right? It's a statement or an acknowledgement of something. I think today we probably normally use this this word negatively, uh, like a confession of guilt, right? Um, Here, though, it's used positively. It's the confession of our hope. It's, it's the confession of what we hope in, the author says. You see, Christian faith, drawing near to God through Jesus, can never remain just a private matter. It's never just between me and Jesus, right? It always has to spill over and be confessed publicly. Right? We not only believe in our hearts, we, do you know this language? We confess with our mouths. This is what we do at baptism, for example, right? We, we publicly confess, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. We confess it. Right? This is also why as a church we have a confession, all right, or a, a statement of faith that I read from earlier. Right? That, what does this do? This states, it acknowledges what we believe together, what we hope in um, together. Now, it's interesting to me that the author of Hebrews calls our Christian confession here, the confession of our, did you see it? The confession of our hope. I think this language of hope shows that as Christians, we not only confess things about the past, for example, Jesus died and he was raised, we not only confess things about the present, like I'm a sinner, but we also confess things about, strangely, about the future. Right? We, we, we believe and confess things about the future. But why is that? It's because God has promised us things about the future. So one of the earliest Christian confessions is called the Apostles' Creed. And it says a couple of things about the future. It says, I believe that Jesus Christ shall come to judge the living and the dead. And it says, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. See, this is a confession of hope, looking to our future hope. And the author of Hebrews tells us that we must hold fast 
to this confession. Now, why would we be tempted to abandon our confession? I think maybe one of the biggest reasons is peer pressure. Our confession is unpopular in the world. The first readers of this letter were probably tempted to give up their confession of Christ and go back to the Jewish rituals they grew up with because that's what all their neighbors did. Right? It would just be a lot easier to fit in. I don't think it's that much different for us today. Maybe most of your family are not believers. Sometimes, can it, it, wouldn't it just be easier to give up this Christian thing and be normal? Consider how, pop, how unpopular it is to say that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Right? How tempting and sophisticated it sounds to say that there are many paths to God. Or how, how unpopular is it to say that I believe and confess that Jesus will return and judge sin? Wouldn't it be a lot easier just to say, we're all okay, or we're all wonderful? Right? It might be easier in the short run, but the author of Hebrews tells us that would be abandoning our hope. It would be abandoning the confession of our hope. It would be drifting away from Jesus and, and drifting away from God himself. He tells us, hold fast to your confession, even in the midst of peer pressure. People may oppose us. Considering the history of the church, people may even oppose us to the point of killing us. But God will never abandon us, even after our death. That's what the author says here. He says, he says the one who promised is faithful. He will follow through on everything that he has promised to us about the future. Let me suggest just a few practical ways here we could hold fast to our confession, to the confession of our hope. First, I think we can learn more about what we believe and confess. Right? Um, and there's different ways we could do this. One of the main ones is just reading and studying the Bible. Right? You could do that on your own, or maybe with another person here at church, maybe go to one of our Bible studies. Um, let me just, I know we have some seminary students in here. Let me just encourage you, uh, seminary students, that your study of theology is not in, I've only seen one, so I'm just like looking at Matt. All right, all right. <laughs> Where's all the rest of them? Yeah, all right. Um, uh, your study of theology is not in vain, um, right? It's by, if by God's grace, it helps you to hold fast to your confession, right? So, so we can learn more about what we believe and confess. Um, maybe maybe uh, you'd like to read, you don't know where to start. Email Josh or email John, right? Uh, they can give you some great ideas uh, for where to start. Uh, second, maybe you do know where to start, but maybe we just need to remind, remind ourselves about what we believe and confess. This could be as simple as getting the pamphlet and reading through our statement of faith again, our confession, right? Or even better, reading the Bible again, right? The Bible is, is limitless. Every time we read it, we're going to be remembering things we've forgotten, but also learning new things and making new connections, right? Um, so that can be a way to hold fast to our confession. And third, let me just say we can teach others. Um, and especially, because we have a lot of children, especially we can teach our children, 
And that reminds us as well. A useful tool here could be a catechism, a question-answer tool that teaches the basics of the faith. Um, You could, again, email Josh or John, and they could give you tips on that. So learning, um, remembering, teaching, but, but however we do it, let's hold fast to our confession. That's the second point. Finally, in light of what we have in Jesus, we should consider one another. We should consider one another. Look at verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Christ did not only die to bring, in, pardon me, to bring individuals into community with God, but to bring us into community with one another. Right? He pulls us toward God, but He also pulls us toward one another. We're, as Matt said earlier, we're, we're a family, right? We're the family of faith. You can see this even in the way the author of Hebrews addresses us as brothers, right? Or brothers and sisters. What does this mean? It means we're family members, right? We're brothers and sisters of one another. We're brothers and sisters that all confess a common hope in Jesus Christ. Now, that's true outside the walls of this building, too, right? We're brothers and sisters with everyone who confesses Christ throughout the world. And we're brothers and sisters with everyone who's confessed Christ throughout all time. Those who've gone before us, like the author of this letter, and those who will come after us. But I think that the exhortation here to consider one another, of course, speaks most specifically about the brothers and sisters in our local church that we meet together with. So in in the church, I think that's what he's specifically thinking of, in the church, we should not only think about ourselves, we should give careful thought and notice to one another. Specifically, he says in verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Most fundamentally, Christians are those who draw near to God in faith. Right? We call ourselves believers because we, we draw near to God in faith. We're, um, but we also are a people who love one another. Right? Our faith is important, but our love is important as well. And then we do the kinds of good or beautiful works that accompany and flow from our love for our brothers and sisters. In fact, we're not just called to we're not just called to love each other, we're actually called to think about how to stir up that kind of love in our brothers and sisters. It's hard to, I, as, I, as I studied this text, I thought, how in the world do you do that? You know? uh, and then the friend pointed out, that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing. Right? And that's what I'm trying to do right now, all right? to stir that up in you as much as I can. How do we do this specifically? I think the author gives us two ways in verse 25. All right. Um, first, he says, by not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. We stir up love and good works in one another by not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. So really, one of the most important things that we can do is just go to church. It's just go to church. It's show up, Right? This is the time that we meet together 
and we worship God together, and we listen to his word together. But we must make meeting together a priority. Right? We must not neglect it. Especially, especially our Sunday meetings, right? Where we come together to sit under the word. But also other meetings, like our community groups. I have a close friend who travels a lot for work, but even if they're in California and they have to work on Saturday, they always try to book a red-eye flight overnight so that they can get in on Sunday morning and come to church on Sunday morning. That is not neglecting to meet together. Um, <clears throat> why do some people neglect this? Why do some people neglect to meet together as a church? The author says here, it's the habit of some. And I think he's really talking about people who are walking away from the faith. Right? Neglecting going to church and walking away from the faith go hand in hand. Because the gravity of Christ not only brings us to God, but it brings us to one another. If we're drifting away from God's people, we're in danger of drifting away from God himself. There are many times that I have not wanted to go to church on Sunday. Um, and uh, <clears throat> you know what that shows? It shows my evil, unbelieving heart, right? Um, when you're tempted to not come and meet with God's people, tell the devil, no. Come to church, right? Um, we need God's people, but they also need us. What do they need us to do? The author of Hebrews says, in the last part of verse 25 here, he says, we should not neglect to meet together, but we should encourage one another. We should encourage one another. I think we could actually translate this, we should exhort one another. Because he's not only thinking, he's thinking about positive encouragement, yes, but I think he's also thinking about warning one another. Even this letter itself he calls a message of exhortation. Right? He's warning us. Um, he, 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 what is he doing? Right? He's reminding us, he's reminding his brothers and sisters about what we have in Christ, and then he's urging us to live in light of it. And this is what we should be doing for one another. Right? We should remind each other what we have in Christ, and then we should urge each other to live in light of it. Coming to church is not passive, right? It, it takes a lot of work. We have to consider each other. We have to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And finally, the author of Hebrews says we should be doing this more and more as we see the day approaching. Often, there's a lot of energy at the beginning of something, like the beginning of a church merger, right? Uh, one year in. And then what happens? The energy kind of fades as time goes by. The thing that drives Christians, though, should not be our beginning. It should be our end, right? It should be the day, the day that Christ comes back, right? The day when we're finally brought into full and unhindered communion with God and with one another. This day is fixed. 
in God's plan. He already knows when it's coming. And if that's true, it means that every Sunday that we meet together, we're one week closer to the day. Um, one thing I learned about my wife, Colleen, when we were dating is that she really likes countdowns, all right? So um, we, we dated long distance, and I'd get a random link to an internet timer that uh, gave a countdown for the next time that we'd see each other, all right? And then the closer it got, we'd get more excited, right? And we'd say, two more days, right? Or two more sleeps. It's almost here. Well, in the same way, <clears throat> pardon me, every time we meet together, the day is closer. It's a whole week closer. We should be more excited and remind each other that it's coming. We should remind each other what we have in Jesus and what we should do in light of it. We have confidence to approach God through the blood of Jesus. And so we should draw near to God and to one another. Please pray with me. God, we pray that your word would be living and active in us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.